the American Civil War podcast, where together we will explore the origins, battles, campaigns, individuals, and consequences of the American Civil War. My name is Sean, and this is Episode 6, A Very Small Affair, The Attack on Fort Sumter. As always, if you want to reach out with questions or comments, feel free to do so on the show's Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash podcast, or you can email the show at americancivilwarpodcast at gmail.com. This show is available to be listened to on a variety of platforms to include Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, or Player FM. At the end of Episode 4, we left off with Confederate Secretary of War Walker sending a telegram to General Beauregard to demand Major Anderson's evacuation prior to any resupply attempt by the federal government and upon his refusal to attack, which took place on April 10th. Before we proceed, however, let us backtrack a week or two to capture a few interesting nuggets to help round out this story. Back on April 3rd, Confederate gunners had opened fire on the schooner Rhoda H. Shannon. In Christopher Dickey's book, Our Man in Charleston, Britain's Secret Agent in the Civil War South, Dickey writes, Fort Sumter hangs in the balance, but we're promised action of some sort in a few days. Bunch wrote on the afternoon of April 5, 1861. The southern gunners were getting trigger-happy. Two nights before, they'd fired at a schooner full of nothing but ice that was bound from Boston to Savannah when it tried to pull into the harbor to escape bad weather. Their cannons had taken 15 shots at her, Bunch noted, but only one of them scored, ripping through her mainsail. The incident was over before Major Anderson was able to make his guns ready. Despite this aggressive action on the part of the Confederates, Major Anderson, in his report on the incident, noted that he was very much constrained by the orders of the previous Federal Secretary of War, dated to February 23rd, which directed him to remain strictly on the defensive. Based on that guidance, it is doubtful he would have opened fire unless hostile action was specifically directed at him in this case, which it was clearly not. Even at this late hour, though no one knew it yet, and despite the bellicose talk from the South Carolinians and the Confederates overall, Governor Pickens was still hopeful that the Federal garrison could be induced to depart the fort peacefully. Believing that a principal person would accept martyrdom if the only alternative was dishonor, he concluded that Anderson could be persuaded to leave if President Lincoln granted him the authority to do so. Speaking of honor, here is yet one more thread to the story that must be unraveled a bit to fully appreciate the high drama surrounding this event. These are the questions and perceptions surrounding the loyalty of Major Anderson himself to the United States. To help address this, I'm going to quote at length from William Bruce Johnson's book, Lincoln's First Crisis, Fort Sumter, and the Betrayal of the President, published in 2020. Here we will take another step backwards in time to November of 1860, when Major Anderson first arrived in Charleston to assume command of the garrison. In removing Anderson's predecessor, Floyd, that is, President Buchanan's Secretary of War, John Buchanan Floyd, had favored local feeling over the defense needs of the soldiers under his command. Formerly, Virginia's Governor Floyd apparently hoped that Charleston would construe his appointment of Anderson as a friendly gesture. 
in that Anderson was from Kentucky. He had married a Georgian, he had owned slaves, and had served in Charleston before. As a West Point graduate, class of 25, Anderson was a comrade and friend of many Southerners, including Kentucky-born Jefferson Davis, class of 28. Another officer noted that if the qualifications for commanding Charleston's fort included a boundless partiality for the South and a hatred and contempt for Northerners, then few would have been better than Major Anderson can be found. Union officers at Moultrie would receive so many invitations to mingle in local society that acceptances had to be limited to maintain readiness. Anderson's hosts at such gatherings assumed that if either Kentucky or Anderson's adopted state of Georgia seceded, he would forthwith resign his U.S. commission and join some Southern militia. Despite Anderson's declared Southern affinities, as a war-vetted officer, he had no interest in friendly capitulation on his own authority of the indefensible Fort Moultrie. On November 23rd, he asked his superiors in Washington dispatch reinforcements forthwith, since an attempt to overrun his garrison was, quote, apparent to all, and nothing would be better calculated to prevent bloodshed, end quote, than a Union pretense substantial enough to make it madness and folly to attack us, essentially the position Winfield Scott had taken. On November 28th, and again on December 1st, Anderson pressed his request. The question for the government to decide, he wrote, is whether when South Carolina secedes, these forts are to be surrendered. If so, I must be informed of it and instructions of what course I am to pursue, but instead they were to be defended Either reinforcements or warships were required without delay. In his initial letter requesting more troops, Anderson asked his superior, Colonel Samuel Cooper, Adjutant General of the U.S. Army, to keep the request utterly secret, since if word got out and reached Charleston, locals would immediately attack. Anderson's letters of November 28th and December 1st crossed to by Cooper, who advised Anderson that henceforth he should only communicate with Cooper or Floyd, not with anyone else in the War Department. While in subsequent weeks, other high officials in the Army and Navy would similarly instruct subordinate officers in the field to limit their contacts because of suspected disloyalty among clerks, here the instructions was perfidious in that both Floyd and Cooper would themselves prove to be disloyal, their apparent purpose being to limit what loyal personnel knew of Anderson's plight and his request for help. Cooper, in denying Anderson's request for troops, went on to state, it is believed from the information thought to be reliable that an attack will not be made on your command, adding that if proven incorrect, your actions must be as such as to be free from the charge of the initiation of a collision. Thus, while Anderson had made clear that his command was in an indefensible position, all Cooper would say was that if an attack came, Anderson's primary duty was to prove that he had not provoked it. So, from that rather long but informative quote, we learn a couple of interesting things. To be honest, folks, I kind of wish I had had this book before I had started this podcast undertaking. First, we learn that Major Anderson's appointment to command the Charleston garrison was made with 
his southern sympathies in mind. Second, he had affiliations with a number of southern foreign officers during his career. Third, his wife was a fully born southerner, a Georgian. Fourth, he had owned slaves. Fifth, he, by reputation, held northerners in contempt. Sixth, those southerners around him in Charleston, following his assumption of command, assumed he would go south upon either the state of his birth, which was Kentucky, or his adopted home state, and the state of his wife's birth, Georgia, left the Union. Now let's contrast this quickest summation against that of one of his superiors, U.S. Army Adjutant General Colonel Samuel Cooper. Samuel Cooper was born in the unincorporated community of New Hackensack, which lies inside the modern-day town of Wappingers in Dutchess County, New York, in 1798. He entered the United States Military Academy at West Point in 1813. Yes, for those of you who just did the mental calisthenics on that, he was only 15 years old. And he graduated 36 in his class of 40 in 1815. And at that time, the course of study at West Point was only two years. In 1827, he married Sarah Maria Mason from Virginia and brother-in-law to James Murray Mason. Now, Sarah's sister would go on to marry Sidney Smith Lee, the older brother of Robert E. Lee. For most of his career, he would serve primarily as a staff officer in Washington, D.C., as the Assistant Adjutant General and later Adjutant General of the U.S. Army. He did see brief service during the Second Seminole War in 1841-42, but thereafter returned to Washington where he did serve briefly as Secretary of War in 1857. In the case of Samuel Cooper, we first learn that he was a Northerner by birth. Second, that he had a number of affiliations with a number of Southern-born officers, like Anderson, during his career, and having the Lee family as relatives by marriage through his wife's family. Third, his wife was also a fully-born Southerner, in this case of Virginia. And fourth, he also owned slaves. The lesson learned here is, this, is that, despite one's sympathies, affiliations, and relationships, it doesn't necessarily dictate how one will ultimately make decisions. In the case of Samuel Cooper, he will become the highest-ranking general in a few more weeks in the Confederate Army. Robert Anderson, however, will remain loyal to the Union. But of course, the true nature of where Major Anderson's loyalties were neither known or understood by those at this particular moment in Washington, which did play a part in how their decisions were made. How they came to have knowledge of this plays an interesting part of this story as well. Captain Abner Doubleday, an upstate New York native, who was as serving as Major Anderson's Czech second-in-command, and who was also not at all shy about sharing his pro-Unionist sentiments, even in downtown Charleston, a pretty brave man to do so, had at this point written a number of letters home, sharing his bitter criticisms of his commander with his family 
and would later repeat these criticisms in his memoir. In mid-January, his brother Ulysses Doubleday, apparently on his own initiative, decided to forward one of these letters to then-president-elect Abraham Lincoln. And in his, Ulysses' letter summarizing the situation, he wrote that the garrison's, quote, situation grows more critical thanks to the vacillation and incompetency of Mr. Buchanan and Major Anderson. All this could have been prevented. Depend upon it, Major A's heart is not in his duty, end quote. So, is it any wonder that when we get to mid-March and early April of 1861, that President Lincoln is as the crisis develops, having doubts as to the loyalty of Fort Sumter's commanding officer. Again, I will take the liberty here of sharing another quote, though not quite as long, from William Bruce Johnson's book on the subject. Lincoln, knowing of Anderson's primarily through Doubleday's accusations of disloyalty, had never reached out to him with words of support, nor asked Scott, referring to General Winfield Scott, to do so, despite numerous newspaper accounts of the garrison's sense of isolation. Whether appraised of Anderson's emotional state or not, Lincoln still entertained sufficient doubts about his loyalty, exactly the point upon which now Anderson was quite superfluously prepared to die that Lincoln turned to Abner Doubleday's wife, Mary, asking her to forward her husband's letters so that he might glean from them a deeper understanding. She complied, telling Lincoln that her husband had been exceedingly cautious in his letters after many were not delivered and others had apparently been opened and read. The letters she sent included nothing new against Anderson, and only reiterated what everyone already knew, that the food and water were running out. So now we return to where we started at the beginning of this podcast, to the still hopeful attitude that Governor Pickens had about compelling Anderson to surrender and leave the fort without a fight. However, events were already moving that would prevent that very thing from happening. As covered at the end of episode 4, in Lincoln's letter to Governor Pickens about the supply ship en route to Fort Sumter, whose contents were summarized and reported by General Beauregard to the Confederate government in Montgomery, and their subsequent decision on April 10th by that government to order General Beauregard to demand the fort's evacuation prior to the fleet's arrival and upon Anderson's refusal to attack. The initial demand came on the afternoon of April 11th, when Colonel James Chestnut Jr., along with two other aides-de-camp to General Beauregard, arrived at Sumter and informed Major Anderson that, if the garrison departed, safe passage would be granted. Following a consultation with his officers, Major Anderson replied an hour later that the proposal was rejected. As Colonel Chestnut left, however, he noted to him that it wouldn't be very long before they were starved out anyway, only a few days hence. This put the Confederate command in Charleston in a quandary. On the one hand, they had intelligence that there was a relief force en route to Fort Sumter, with supplies to sustain the garrison, 
However, there were those like Virginian Edmund Ruffin who asserted that this was a northern lie in order to deceive them, forcing them to fire the first shot and, therefore, become the aggressor party in the conflict. The notice of an incoming fleet would force their hand to fire the first shot before that fleet arrived. Beauregard forwarded Anderson's comment to Montgomery, where the knee-jerk reaction was Anderson was trying to mislead them, with the assumption that they knew nothing of Lincoln's relief effort. However, on the off chance that this was indeed a genuine comment, and with the hope that a peaceful resolution was still possible, Borgard was directed to send the following message. Quote, if you will state the time at which you will evacuate Fort Sumter and agree that in the meantime you will not use your guns against us unless ours shall be employed against Fort Sumter, we will abstain from opening fire upon you. This carefully worded message would prevent Anderson, if he accepted his conditions, from firing upon the Confederates even if they opened fire on Union ships. Beauregard gave this message to Colonel Chestnut for delivery to the fort. As he departed in his boat from Charleston waterfront at 1.30 a.m. on April 12th, the Harriet Lane was arriving off the Charleston Harbor entrance, and accompanying him this time was Virginia's Roger Pryor to deliver this message to Anderson. After nearly two hours in consultation with his officers, he returned with his reply at 3 a.m., which stated, quote, cordially, united with you in the desire to avoid the useless effusion of blood, I will evacuate Fort Sumter by noon on the 15th instant, and I will not in the meantime open my fires upon your forces unless compelled to do so by some hostile act against this fort or the flag of my government by the forces under your command, end quote. By adding the words, or flag of my government, Anderson sought to keep himself free to act if the Confederates opened fire upon any vessel. He went on to write two additional conditions that he would be free to fire if, one, he received additional supplies, and two, he received controlling instructions from his government. Colonel Chestnut at this point didn't even bother to answer back to General Beauregard as he immediately construed this as a rejection and instead he wrote to Major Anderson, quote, we have the honor to notify you that we will open fire of General Beauregard's batteries on Fort Sumter in one hour from this time. The time of this note was 3.20 a.m. on April 12, 1861. Once again, I shall return to William Bruce Johnson's book for what happens next. On Friday, April 12, between 4.25 and 4.30 a.m., on James Island, Roger Pryor was offered the chance to light the first fuse, an honor undoubtedly bestowed as an additional means to bind the Virginian to the secessionist cause. Pryor declined 
evincing an unwillingness to trigger the commencement of death by a signal mortar, despite his flamboyant insults to the Union just the day before. The honor, then, of the first signal shot thus went to the lieutenant under the command of Captain George S. James. With a service shot of about 10 pounds and an elevation of 45 degrees, a 10-inch seacoast mortar could project an exploding shell of almost 100 pounds up to 4,250 yards. Following the computation of the appropriate combination of powder and angle to give the appropriate trajectory, the slow-moving mortar shell went curving over in a kind of semicircle, the lit fuse trailing behind, showing a glimmer of light like the wings of a firefly until it burst about a hundred feet above the fort. The Confederate batteries had arranged to fire two minutes apart with rounds of all pieces and batteries to be completed in 32 minutes and then to begin again. By 4.50 a.m., all the batteries and mortars which encircled the Grim Fortress were in full play against it. And thus, despite the account popularly portrayed regarding the firing of the first shot as I shared in episode 2 of this podcast, it appears the historical record is a bit different. Captain Abner Doubleday was determined to get as much sleep as possible before the ugly business nearly at hand began in earnest. Following the 3.20 a.m. note, he was determined to get some sleep. Doubleday, like Anderson, knew that the fort's supply of ammunition and powder were low. He would later write, We had no lights. We could in fact do nothing before the time except to wander about in darkness and fire without an accurate view of the enemy's works. Shortly after the Confederate fire on the fort started, Doubleday would record that a round shot buried itself in the wall just on the other side of his head, writing, in a very unpleasant proximity to my right ear. The firing burst forth in one continuous roar, and large patches of both the exterior and interior masonry began to rumble and fall in all directions. Once the firing began, inside the fort, the enlisted men were at their best, with one private of Irish ancestry noting that the thrill that ran through our veins at this time was indescribable and that the stern, defiant look on each man's countenance plainly told that fear was no part of his constitution. Before taking up their guns and allowing for the light of day to better illuminate their targets, Anderson fed his command breakfast, which consisted of that morning of pork and water. There really was no sense of going into combat on an empty stomach. During their long months of siege, the soldiers in the fort had not been idle. Around 60 guns of various calibers and designs had been made ready, and with the Confederate batteries in plain view, the fires in event of an attack were essentially pre-planned. The fort's fire was divided on Cummings Point, three guns, their old previous residence of Fort Moultrie, four guns, Sullivan's Island, six guns, and Old Fort Johnson, four guns. When the fort first returned fire is itself a bit in dispute. One report states that Fort Sumter returned fire at 5.30 a.m. 
with two shots fired at Fort Moultrie, although others state that this was not the case. Another report claims that it was after sunrise, which would have only been a few minutes later at 5.34 a.m. that morning, while other reports state that the fort did not open fire until a few minutes past 7 a.m. The honor, apparently, of the first shot goes to the fort's second-in-command, Captain Abner Doubleday, whose initial target appears to have been the floating iron case battery at a distance of approximately 1,200 yards. For those rounds that did make contact, the primitive armor design worked as intended with the shots bouncing off like hailstones, according to one observer, while another described it like marbles thrown at the back of a turtle. Others shattered on impact. None penetrated the railroad plating. The guns that Anderson and Doubleday had trained on this iron battery were the 8-inch Columbiads. Some have asserted that the one weapon that they had in their inventory that could have made a difference was the 10-inch Columbiad, which was still aimed in the direction of Charleston and never repositioned. The Confederates kept their fire going all day and overnight on the April 12-13th, during which time the relief fleet, which had been scattered in a gale as it sailed from New York, gathered at the rendezvous point 10 miles east of the lighthouse at the harbor's entrance. During the course of the bombardment, approximately 40 hot shots were fired from the 8-inch Columbiads on Sullivan's Island. The 64-pound solid iron balls would be first heated in a furnace before being loaded into a cannon and fired with the intent of igniting anything flammable in the area where they landed. This is, of course, exactly what happened, and the fort's officers' quarters quickly caught fire and soon were burning out of control with the secondary effect that the smoke moved with the wind into the gun positions so thick that the men working the guns could only breathe if they laid themselves on the floor, covering their faces with wet cloths. When the fire threatened the fort's magazine, however, the place where all the powder and fuses were kept, the barrels were rolled out and dumped into the harbor, while others were rolled onto the gun positions and covered in wet blankets in order to prevent the burning debris from igniting it. However, after 34 hours, and not after a little bit of confusion surrounding the terms, Major Anderson surrendered Fort Sumter. General Beauregard offered the same terms as prior to the bombardment, with the only amendment being that Anderson was granted permission to salute the flag in order to, as he explained to his men, that such terms were not unusual and that he did so to show our magnanimity to the gallant defenders who were only executing the orders of their government. During the bombardment, the Confederates fired over 3,300 rounds, with the fort answering in reply with somewhere near 1,000 rounds. Not one soldier on either side was killed, that is, until the ceremonial transfer took place. In what had been planned to be a hundred-gun salute to the flag, a tragic event occurred on the 17th shot. What exactly caused the tragedy is unclear, though plenty of speculation abounds. The effect, however, was that an explosion of the gun resulted in mortal wounds being inflicted on two of the Union artillerymen, one of whom succumbed quickly, 
and was buried in the parade ground of the fort, and the other dying sometime later in a local hospital. As a result, the planned 100-gun salute was cut short at 50. As one of the ships took Major Anderson and his men out, the Union fleet gathered outside the harbor entrance. Confederate soldiers at Cummings Point lined the beach silent, with heads uncovered, and thus paid homage to their enemy. Following the surrender, Governor Pickens spoke from the Charleston Hotel, telling the gathering, we took the lead in coming out of this old union, and that now we have humbled the flag of the United States before the glorious state of South Carolina. What is of interest is that in the immediate aftermath, what the reaction was of many of the locals. Many sincerely believed that this action would not lead to war, but was more akin to a gentleman's duel, in which now that both sides have fired at each other, the honor of both sides has been satisfied, and both could leave the field now in a respectable manner. Robert Bunch, the British consul in Charleston, wrote, and so ended the first and we trust the last engagement of the American Civil War. Florida novelist Ellen Call Long would write, The general impression is now that the federal government, realizing that the South is in earnest, will let us depart in peace. Yet another would write, I trust in God this business will end. Heaven has favored our side, and we are all grateful to a very kind providence. However, the, perhaps the most interesting comment regarding the battle comes from the famous British war correspondent, William Howard Russell, who after surveying both Forts Moultrie and Sumter said, A very small affair indeed. Never did men plunge into unknown depths of peril and trouble more recklessly than these Carolinians. And here we shall bring this episode to a close. In the next episode, we will transition from the micro-view to a more macro-view of events as we look at the immediate consequences and actions taken by both sides following the events in Charleston and Fort Sumter. <laughs>